The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, my guest is Florida's slime crime fighter, Chris Costello. Hello, Chris. Hi, Rob. Nice to be here. Now, you are the regional organizing representative of Sierra Club? I am one of them in the state of Florida, yes. Of Florida region, yes. And you're director of? I'm director of the Protecting Florida's Waters campaign, but we uh, lovingly refer to it as the Slime Crimes campaign. Right. So um, what, what do you mean? What, what, is this where people sneeze? What do you mean by slime crime? Well, um, right now in the state of Florida, over half of our state's rivers, lakes, and springs are um, considered imperiled or are impaired for nutrient pollution. That's nitrogen and phosphorus pollution. Um, And that's not even uh, actually surveying all of them, so we think the number is higher. What happens when uh, a water body is impaired by nitrogen and phosphorus pollution is that, um, unfortunately, ugly, um, harmful algae outbreaks um, are fed by this pollution, and the easiest way to describe the harmful algae outbreaks or harmful algal blooms is to say slime. So um, we think it's a crime here in Florida that there's so much slime all over our beloved, once iconic waterways. And on beaches. I've seen locals from Jupiter Island to um, the other side of Florida concerned about Nothing seems to outrage, outrage locals more than a grandparent whose beach is slimy for their grandchildren. Absolutely. We have brown tides. We have red tides. We have new harmful algae that is um, uh, uh, hurting our beaches, showing up on our beaches, algae that's never showed up in Florida before. Um, our worst um, areas um, along the coast really have been the southwest uh, Gulf Coast in Florida. Um, but like I said, pretty much every estuary Every water body from the panhandle of Florida down to the Florida Keys has seen its um, really uh, huge share of um, harmful algal outbreaks and uh, ugly slime uh, hurting public health, uh, quality of life, property values, um, and definitely uh, the grandkids' trip to uh, Grandma and Grandpa's place in Florida. Oh, dear. Well, scientists agree that nitrogen is the worst pollution of oceans, uh, because it supports the growth of algae and because the blooming algae can eat up the oxygen and cause dead zones, and then we can see fish swimming into the, the dead zone and turning up dead. And uh, there's just a lot of problems to oceans brought 
by nitrogen. That is unfortunately the truth. That is not a debate. There is no debate. Uh, we definitely know that nitrogen is killing our, our coastal waters and, and in large swaths of our oceans, yes. So where does nitrogen come from in Florida? Well, there are um, three main sources, three large uh, sources of it, and that is um, manure. So that can be dog poop or that can be uh, cow manure from, from large or small um, animal feeding operations. Um, then there's, of course, sewage, uh, whether it's untreated sewage that seeps from septic tanks um, or inadequately treated sewage um, from um, less than optimal levels of uh, wastewater treatment. Um, um, that is a big, that's a big, and sewage spills, I can't forget sewage spills. Um, and then, of course, there's fertilizer. Um, agricultural fertilizer um, is a huge chunk of the problem, but urban fertilizer, um, the stuff that we use in our backyards and our front yards that really isn't growing anything to eat, um, that's a big source of urban stormwater uh, nitrogen and phosphorus pollution. Now, I know communities are arguing about how best to build, you know, treatment facilities and uh, how, you know, that's a very expensive operation uh, to address that, um, you know, nitrogen from sewage and septic and stuff. But it seems pretty easy to address the lawn nitrogen problem. It's the lowest hanging fruit there is. If you think of um, the nitrogen pollution problem as a pie and you divide that pie into the slices, uh, agricultural, urban, uh, wastewater, um, the urban sources, um, especially urban fertilizer, is the cheapest. It's almost free to take care of that slice. And when you take care of that slice, um, you do it by prevention rather than cleanup, and that's what makes it so cheap. But what you also do is you take a little pressure off of those infrastructure types of um, fixes that cost so much money. So urban fertilizer management is good even for the, the bigger polluters, um, the other pieces of pie, whether it be agricultural producers or uh, wastewater treatment operators. Well, it really, you know, kind of burns me if I spend $5,000 and reach rebuilding my septic treatment, you know, uh, thing in the ground there, then see that nitrogen is still coming in off of lawns and stuff. So it, it's good for people who are putting money into um, the septic and sewage treatment to see that there's also action happening with lawns, I would think. Absolutely. That's a really good point. And you have to start somewhere, and we've found that urban fertilizer management um, education and um, advocacy has really done a great job of starting that education process. Once someone understands what they're doing in their own backyard um, can do to hurt or help, the situation, um, it's much easier to talk about the bigger, um, uh, more infrastructure-based solutions also. Um, you know, once you, start, um, once you start on that path, you, you, you definitely continue to go in the right direction. Yeah, I found that, that uh, people are telling me, oh, I should go after big corporations and so forth. But I find that all the big corporations are run by people who have their own yards and lawns. And if they learn at home how to treat right, then if possible, they'll bring it back to the workplace. And that's much more easy place to educate than trying to tell an expert how to treat their product. Boy, that is, that is definitely true. And um, the only way I've found to change the way corporations uh, 
uh, do their business um, is with grassroots mobilization and grassroots pressure. So really, no matter you know which way you think about it, you really have to start at the grassroots. Yeah, you know, I'm sure the Florida corporations in, want to look in, good in, in their so community. Grass, right, grassroots meaning uh, the people, mobilizing the people. I'm actually not talking about turf there. <laughs> That's right. You could be putting nitrogen on. That would mobilize some root growth, I guess, on the plants. But <laughs> Yeah. Um, so can we have green lawns and cleaner water? Absolutely. Uh, How do we do that? They're not. They're definitely not mutually exclusive. Well, the problem with urban fertilizer isn't that it is used at all. It's that it is overused. Um, it's used at the wrong time of the year. It's used in the wrong um, rates, application rates, and the content or the type of fertilizer um, can be wrong or right. So it's really a question of putting on the least amount possible, putting it on the right time of the year. In Florida, that is when the turf is not dormant and when it is not raining. And that's our, our rainy season is very distinct. We have four months from June through September. Um, and then the right kind of fertilizer. There are fertilizers that you put them on the ground and they either run off or, um, or volatilize um, as soon as you put them down if you get a rain. Um, but there are others that last longer. So it really is a matter of um, using fertilizer in a wise way. Yes. So um, how are you telling people to practice taking care of our lawns specifically? Well, um, we've been doing it. Um, uh, we've, we've In Florida, uh, since 2006, we have had a campaign to um, encourage local governments to pass urban fertilizer management ordinances. Um, it takes um, the education um, uh, about these issues up a notch. Education has not been enough. So um, since 2007, actually, local governments have been passing what we call strong urban fertilizer ordinances. Um, right now we have 50 local governments um, that have passed these strong, um, strong codes. Um, and they all include basically the following, um, what we call backbones of a strong ordinance. One is a rainy season ban um, that, again, is June 1st through September 30th here in uh, Florida. Um, so no nitrogen, no phosphorus applied uh, during that period. Um, the, uh, another one is the required use of at least 50% slow-release nitrogen content. Um, so half of the, the um, fertilizer can be quick release, but at least half needs to be um, slow release. Um, it will feed the lawn over time. Feed it, right, over time. That gets it all the way through the um, summer rainy ban season, a rainy season ban, um, and it continues to be fed. Um, then there is the uh, four-pound limit on nitrogen application per year per 1,000 square feet. Um, uh, zero phosphorus um, year-round unless a soil test proves that your soil is deficient, um, and a mandatory at least 10-foot fertilizer-free zone between um, the top of the bank uh, uh, or the water's edge um, or a seawall um, from that water so that there is at least 10 feet where fertilizer is not being applied to keep it out of the water and keep... Um, 
runoff from happening uh, down to like the water's edge. Buffer zone or something like that. Right. We, it's called fertilizer-free zones. It's called buffer zones. Um, but the idea is have a good at least 10 feet uh, between whatever fertilizer does get laid down when it does get laid down and the water's edge. So I'd mentioned that nitrogen is the worst pollution of pollutant of oceans. Uh, phosphorus does to freshwater systems what nitrogen does to uh, oceans? Uh, more or less, but it's much more complicated than that. Um, the science. But there is a problem in Florida with freshwater um, algal blooms and stuff, right? There, there definitely is, but um, phosphorus isn't the only problem in um, in freshwater bodies. Um, what's killing our springs in Florida is actually nitrate. Um, so, ah. so um, there has to be a balance of nitrogen and phosphorus, and it has to be the correct balance in any water body, whether it's freshwater or or um, coastal waters, uh, oceans. Um, and so um, our uh, position here is that you have to control for both. One of the problems we've seen is that inland communities uh, will take care of phosphorus, uh, will, will limit phosphorus use, um, which is much less controversial now, and forget about nitrogen. And so they um, hurt themselves by not limiting nitrogen, and then they certainly hurt the downstream communities that, that are on the coast. So, yeah, you really have to control for both, no matter mm. where you live. So I um, saw you just last week in um, where was it, Orlando, and we were talking about, you know, past efforts, and you were preparing to go to Rock Ledge, a, a town on a city on the uh, Atlantic side of, of Florida, on Indian River Lagoon, where the Ocean River Institute had put together, you know, 60 signatures and comments 60,000. Um, so somebody ended up taking our four-inch notebook down the, to the meeting. Um, what was that and how did it go? That was just yesterday, right? The meeting it was. Rock- it was last night. Um, well, um, Rockledge a week ago had a draft ordinance that met almost all of the strong provisions that the Sierra Club and other organizations um, recommend. Um, The draft ordinance was to be heard um, at their final vote last night. Um, However, um, at the very last minute, um, the council actually tabled the issue um, until March 20th. They did that because they had heard um, from so many stakeholders, both um, on the environmental side and on the um, pest control management industry side, that they decided to um, wait until March 20th to be able to Incorporate all of the um, all of the input um, and rewrite their draft ordinance. So this is kind of a victory for you. Um, I don't know. Uh, I hope um, it certainly gives us more time to organize, um, but um, it also gives the other side more time to organize. Uh, so. Not sure if the delay is a victory, but we will certainly use the delay to um, to beef up our approach and uh, get prepared for the March 20th hearing. Yes. Um, I first got involved in Florida because my son went to the University of Miami, and my cousin was on Stewart, Florida, on Indian River Lagoon, and he and Nancy Beaver, who runs Sunshine Wildlife Tours, pointed out, you know, but the problems they were having in Martin County. And I was fortunate to um, 
meet with uh, a centrist commissioner, and I'm sure he was informed by the work you've been doing and so forth, so that Martin County managed to put through a pretty good ordinance, um, and we recognized him as a hero for doing so uh, last January. And at that time, uh, I also met with the uh, the chair of Brevard County, which is at the north end of Indian River Lagoon, and he sounded pretty interested. He, he sounded like he would push a, a good ordinance for us. And then, uh, and then you, you, well, you take up the story from there. So uh, then I went away for almost a year, and uh, what happened? <laughs> well, um, Brevard County, um, the county in which Rockledge is located, um, really has been working on a draft ordinance for, I think, close to two years. Um, but all of a sudden they rushed it um, at the end of last year. Uh, we had just a couple of weeks um, to prepare for the hearing. Um, that hearing um, was, gee, I think the best word to use is a circus, um, to describe it as a circus. Um, what we found when um, uh, we I was not there, but our folks um, uh, found when they arrived was that um, there were a couple of commissioners on the Brevard County uh, Board of Commissioners that uh, had invited um, an industry spokesperson, um, actually a University of Florida researcher who has been a spokesperson for the pest control management industry and fertilizer industries uh, for years, over six years. Um, They invited her. Um, They um, did not allow a uh, counterpoint um, to her misinformation uh, she, uh, Dr. Lori Trenholm is her name, um, uh, gave an untrue and unclear picture of uh, uh, recent research um, and really just um, hypnotized um, the commission um, into voting for, unfortunately, uh, one of the weakest ordinances um, in the state. Um, so that was unfortunate. Um, the pest control management industry was there in full force, which they do um, most times, fill the room um, with folks on the clock. Um, but um, we have lost initially before and come back to win. Um, and so the temporary loss in Brevard County is for us um, just a stumbling block. It is not the uh, the end of the of the road we are going to spend the next year. Um, Chris, we're uh, going to take a short break and come back about and talk some more about, you know, how we're going to turn the Brevard County tide around. Excellent. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners 
connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Florida's slime crime fighter, Chris Costello. Chris, where are you calling us from? I'm calling from Sarasota, Florida. And how is it down there today? It's beautiful and sunny at close to 80 degrees. And the slime's not too deep on the shore? Uh, actually, we have had a uh, red tide outbreak along the southwest Gulf Coast of Florida now um, off and on since I want to say November of Holy last smokes. year. Um, it travels um, up and down the coast um, and gets worse and better, uh, but uh, it has not been a good end of year or beginning of year for um, slime in Florida. Now, I know red tide is bad news for beaches. Does it close fisheries too? It absolutely does. It closes shellfish beds um, uh, at very low levels. Um, and red tide is um, red tide contains a brevitoxin that is released when the waves break. Um, it's um, airborne, and it causes um, sometimes very severe respiratory um, distress, especially for asthmatics um, or the elderly. And uh, Venice, Florida, uh, one of the, the municipalities in Sarasota County, has an average age of 69. We're a big retirement community, so red tide on our coast really affects, uh, has some serious public health um, effects. Um, oh. So not a good thing. And there's, I, I found a study, or I was directed to a study, that showed that nitrogen going into the seawater feeds the same algae that the dinoflagellates that are causing the red tide like to consume. And so it's a pretty indirect but pretty clear connection between nitrogen pollution and uh, red tide outbreaks. That is right. Uh, uh, Red tide Karenia brevis um, is a mixotroph. It it feeds like a plant, but it also feeds like an animal. It devours other um, cyanobacteria, other bacteria, and so um, it. Uh, caucus is the the devil that loves urea, loves quick release nitrogen, 
Um, and then Karenia brevis just loves Sinecococcus. It's like its favorite food. So, um, like you said, it's indirect, but um, but it happens fast. So we're cleaning up nitrogen pollution in Florida with Chris Costello. Chris, how can people um, find uh, contact you and find out more about your work? Sure. Well, there are a couple of ways. We have a Facebook page that is easy to find. Um, it is Florida Slime Crimes. So um, if you search for that on Facebook, you'll find us. Uh, we post um, uh, newspaper articles, um, um, press clips uh, from mostly Florida, but sometimes around the country and the world regarding the issue. Um, and it's a way for people to communicate about events um, and mobilize for events. Um, you can also email me at chris, C-R-I-S dot Costello, C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O, at sierraclub.org. Great. Uh, so we were talking about Brevard County on the north part of uh, Indian River Lagoon and how, you know, I had hopes a year ago that um, we'd be back in January celebrating a uh, – a stronger ordinance up there to reduce nitrogen and phosphorus going into the water. And instead, they put through a really wimpy one, and uh, that and St. Lucie County, they both voted, you know, four to one against doing anything decent or proper stewardship, as I would say. I'm a little biased here. And um, so the good news for me is that uh, it means I have to keep coming back to Florida because mm -hmm. there's so much work to be done. But it's just remarkable the number of years and the amount of work that you've done, Chris, on this. So um, in a sense, uh, as you pointed out before we left, that uh, one reason why the, the ordinance didn't pass was because they just rushed it through, and they kind of stacked the decks for the uh, presenters, um, and they didn't permit. And this is what you pointed out to me uh, when we met in, in um, Orlando last week, was that um, – you need time to vet an ordinance, a vet an action that you're asking people to take. Uh, you can't just, you know, zip it through and expect people to suddenly act differently. And, which is what you're very good at, is building coalitions. So tell us a little more about that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we, we know uh, from experience that um, it does take time to, number one, build the kind of public support, do the kind of public education and build the public support um, that is needed to give the county commissioners or city council members um, the ability to vote yes on something that um, has some opposition to it. So, you know, we, we have to make our politicians do right. Um, we can't expect them to do right uh, all by themselves. And so um, every winning endeavor, and, and as I said, we have of 50 local governments where we have actually won strong ordinances, we have in every case built a large, uh, diverse uh, coalition um, that does not only include environmentalists, but local waterfront businesses, homeowner associations, um, um, uh, hunters and anglers, um, uh, charter boat captains, um, a wide variety of um, people and organizations and businesses whose livelihoods and quality of life depend on whatever water body is in that particular watershed. Um, and building that kind of coalition and that kind of public support takes time, um, and that, that's always a big part of it. The other part that
the, of, of the equation that we did not get to do effectively in Brevard County was um, present all of the science that supports a strong ordinance in a way that they would accept and have to um, have to respond to. Um, that didn't happen in Brevard, but we will make sure it happens in the next year. Right. If they were all better educated, and it sounds like it's a simple recipe. If you got the majority of the constituents of a councilman to want something, it's the councilman's duty to put it through. But if you do your education well, then when people give out falsehoods, you're going to see more rolled eyes in the audience, I would think. That's right. That's right. In Brevard County's case, um, the, the researcher that they brought from the University of Florida uh, presented her recent research um, as relevant to Brevard County. But, in fact, her recent research was done in North Florida, where the growing season is different, um, much shorter than it is in Brevard County. And um, no one was prepared on the commission to challenge her on that. Um, mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, that's just crazy. Uh, that's just crazy. A different growing season means uh, a lot when it comes to um, deciding when fertilizer should or should not be applied. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and and I got concerned about Indian River Lagoon because it's a closed body of water and it's shallow until it gets hotter, so that problems are worse there than where there's better circulation and so forth. So that's right. It may be this was a reaction we got in the state government all the time was we didn't want a patchwork of approaches across the state, but that's the essence of you know bioregionalism and ecosystems is that you know. What's right for the lagoon may not be the same for Key West or something, and it's appropriate that people, if they're going to restrict and regulate actions, that they be, you know, site-specific. That's right. That's right. We, we, um, we have never advocated for, uh, we being the Sierra Club, have never advocated for um, uh, a one-size-fits-all um, approach to fertilizer management for the state. We recommend a watershed-by-watershed watershed approach. Um, so um, you really do have to look at local conditions, um, uh, weather patterns, growing season, um, uh, geology, um, uh, different types of soil. Uh, the state of Florida is very large and um, has a diverse set of um, hydrological and geological conditions that, that you really have to pay attention to when you're talking about fertilizer, how it moves. Um, uh, so it's, yeah, watershed by watershed approach is, is what we recommend. And you guys listen locally. So you listen local to the locals, and if, if they're not happy with something, then that's an opportunity to act. But if they're not aware of any problem, it's going to be tougher to put something through. Well, that is the truth. The, the local governments that have passed strong ordinances are, um, are always found in dire straits when it comes to water quality. So, and that's pretty much everywhere in Florida. But where harmful algal blooms whether it is red tide or um, uh, or um, nitrate in springs, um, it is uh, uh, the local government finds itself in a position where they are struggling to keep their local waterfront economy healthy um, and are looking for the cheapest way to do so. Mm. So let's step back for a minute and. Um... Tell us about how you got involved in uh, being an environmental advocate. And um, as, a, as a parent of three so sons, I was uh, interested in your uh, bringing your child into that discussion. Sure, sure. 
Um, well, I've been a troublemaker my entire adult life. Um, I started out as a community organizer in college um, and uh, started um, organizing in the labor movement um, uh, while I was in graduate school. I was in the labor movement for 17 years and then um, found that my daughter, um, as a preteen, really needed me at home, and my contract negotiating schedule um, uh, just kept me from home too much. So um, I switched from uh, the labor movement to uh, the Sierra Club, the environmental movement. Um, it um, That was almost six years ago. And um, it's not like I didn't, I was an, environment, an environmentalist before, but it was more of a volunteer opportunity. It was the way I lived my life at home. But luckily, um, the Sierra Club needed someone um, in uh, the area that I lived in already. And um, so I started with the Sierra Club on this um, campaign in May of 2007. Um, interestingly, organizing skills, grassroots organizing skills in the labor movement are exactly what you need in the environmental movement also. Um, so the skills Absolutely. This is really excellent. I, I know a lot of people who didn't get interested in the environment until they had children, and then they were concerned about, you know, what poisons were going into their children and stuff. That was definitely um, But it's also case. fun working yeah. on the environment because your kids are proud of it. Uh, absolutely no. I definitely became uh, a, a little more radical on my on the environmentalism side uh, when I uh, became pregnant. Um, so absolutely, I'm I'm one of that bunch. Yeah, well, you're. This is a critical group. I mean, it's a wonderful group. Um, so, how did you end up in Florida? I ended up in Florida because um, I was actually in the New York City area for about um, seven years and um, wanted my daughter to be closer to her grandparents. So my husband and I moved down to Florida for that reason, um, the reason that so many people come to Florida. Well, yeah, yeah. And um, so you came down pretty much for, well, the, Sierra works on a number of projects in Florida, Um and, and, you know, like everyone hears about the Everglades. Are you working on the Everglades, too? Um, absolutely. Mike, uh, water, a water quality campaign in Florida um, uh, w would have to um, include the Everglades. Uh, nitrogen and phosphorus pollution in the Everglades is um, extreme. It is one part of the Everglades restoration um, equation. It's return To restore the Everglades, you have to return the southward flow from Lake Okeechobee, um, um, and you have to improve water quality. So our quality, our water quality work um, um, is a part of our, our Greater Everglades campaign. And, and yet, uh, oh, good. Um, are there other campaigns you want to mention? Sure, sure. Um, we have a panther habitat uh, campaign, uh, new staff person in Florida, newly funded campaign working on um, increasing the connectivity of uh, wildlife corridors up through the spine of Florida to enable um, the panther population, very small panther population um, in Florida to um, increase and expand its territory. Um, and we have a um, Florida Healthy Air campaign that works on um, um, transit, um, increasing um, alternatives uh, public for public transit, 
and clean cars. Um, it's um, somewhat associated with the um, Sierra Club's Beyond Oil campaign. Uh, we will soon have um, an organizer uh, working on the Beyond Coal campaign, um, and oh. that campaign is um, focused on shutting down old, dirty coal plants. And instead, doing what for energy? Uh, doing all of the alternatives. Um, this is the sunshine state, so um, solar makes sense here. If if Germany can do solar in a big way, um, gray, cloudy, uh, so much of the time Germany, we certainly can do it here in Florida. Can you burn the slime? Uh, there are a lot of folks that would like to use the slime to make um, biofuels. Um, I don't yeah. know about burning it. Uh, That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah I there's certainly, there is certainly um, interest in that. I, I just fear that they're going to say that, you know, let's dump nitrogen in the ocean to grow slime and then we can, <laughs> then we can no, harvest no. it for oil. Oh, my goodness. That would be the wrong oh. direction to go in. No, we want them to harvest all the red tide and put it into a furnace or something. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Florida has been not too happy with uh, the EPA trying to uh, – tell them how to manage, and apparently the Florida DEP doesn't go far enough, right, for nitrogen? Wow. Well, that that's um, putting, uh, putting it very mildly. Um, <laughs> the Rick Scott, uh, Governor Rick Scott administration here in Florida is um, about as bad as you can get when it comes to protecting the environment. Um, his administration has put in um, industry uh, representatives into the highest positions of the Department of Environmental Protection here in the state. Um, they've um, gotten rid of um, the senior experienced regulatory staff at an unprecedented rate, um, and they have either been unhelpful or um, in opposition to um, any real um, change when it comes to increasing water quality. So we have quite a battle um, at the state level in, in well, any number of um, um, issues regarding water quality or water quantity. We're going to take a short break, and then I'll be back to talk more with our Florida slime crime fighter, Chris Costello. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to 
helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm talking with Chris Costello from the Sierra Club. She is the regional organizing representative, and she's directing the slime fighting of uh, reducing harmful algal blooms and other slime and red tides and other slimy things happening around the coasts and waterways of Florida. Um, Chris, we've we've heard about some setbacks, like in Brevard County, um, and but you've passed many a strong ordinance, and what are some of the um, success stories of implementing uh, good, responsible stewardship in Florida? Sure, sure. That's a good question. Um, So um, of the 50 local ordinances that have been passed, both at the municipal and and county level, um, there are some shining stars. All of them have the backbones um, of which I I mentioned earlier. But... um, I think the Tampa Bay ordinances are probably the best examples. Um, and it actually is a story of any number of different stakeholder partners um, coming together um, uh, to go forward. In the Tampa Bay region, um, they started addressing urban fertilizer management about a year after the first county-level strong ordinance was passed in Sarasota County, which is just south of the Tampa Bay region. Sarasota Bay is um, the estuary south of the Tampa Bay estuary. Um, Mm. The Tampa Bay estuary program, uh, national estuary program, actually put together a model fertilizer management ordinance um, and sent it to the um, uh, local governments, uh, county and municipal, within the Tampa Bay watershed and promoted urban fertilizer management as a way to cut down on the nitrogen and phosphorus um, that was making its way into Tampa Bay. Um, that model ordinance um, was then used by all of the counties, Manatee, Pinellas, um, and Hillsborough, as a starting point in their discussions on fertilizer management ordinance drafting. Um, Over the course of about three years, uh, between 2008 and 2011, um, we got the strongest ordinances in the state passed in Tampa Bay communities, Um, Manatee County and all of its uh, municipalities, Pinellas County and all of its municipalities, and the city of Tampa within Hillsborough County have the strongest ordinances in the state. The Pinellas County ordinances and the city of Tampa actually um, have um, one 
provision that no other uh, ordinances in the state have, um, and that is in addition to their rainy season application ban, they also have a sales ban on uh, non-compliant products, both during the summer and during the whole year. Um, unfortunately, uh, while those ordinances were being passed by those local governments, um, Scott's miracle Grow um, uh, led a, um, uh, a um, bill, uh, led a lobbying effort to get a bill passed at the state level to prohibit local sales bans. And so we only have Pinellas County, all of those municipalities, and Tampa that have the actual sales ban. Um, and just today, um, an article um, came out from, um, it's called Outside Wire. It is the outdoor recreation industry's um, newsletter um, and was touting the Tampa Bay approach to nitrogen reduction um, because of the incredible increase in seagrass um, growth um, and the water quality improvements in Tampa Bay. So um, Tampa Bay has done things right. Um, the Tampa Bay, Bay Estuary Program has been a really vital, has played a vital role in that in that approach and that that um, that road to uh, Tampa Bay restoration. That is our that's the shining star uh, here in Florida, um, and uh, and a really strong group of folks from the local government level to um, environmental organizations to resort owners um, and managers, everyone got together and made it happen. I guess it makes sense if you've got a community that has, you know, the National Estuary Program located there, which has a lot of constituent building and putting together, you know, advisory panels and groups and feedback loops. And um, isn't there a Save Tampa Bay organization as well? There is um, – oh, well, there are any number of organizations in Tampa Bay. Um, there are actually estuary programs um, all along the southwest Gulf Coast. So there's the Tampa Bay Estuary Program, there's the Sarasota Bay Estuary Program, and the Charlotte Harbor National Estuary Program south of Tampa Bay. Um, and so I, I would uh, be remiss if I did not mention the role that all of the national estuary programs played along the southwest Gulf Coast in, in promoting wise urban fertilizer management. However, not all national estuary programs are created equal. Um, there's an Indian River Lagoon national estuary program um, also um, that could take a, a greater role in urban fertilizer management um, promotion and education, and, and that's one of those things we want to work on so that they, they get into the picture uh, when we talk about ordinances in Brevard County and Rockledge and uh, et cetera. That is kind of remarkable that we haven't seen them, you know, putting forward common sense stuff of management, ecosystem-based management, what the whole NEP is about. Isn't well, it's a good question, and, and, and it's unfortunate, but the National Estuary Program in Indian River Lagoon is actually a part of the um, state water management district, um, which is um, uh, run and funded um, through the Florida Department of Environmental Protection. And so it's not so surprising when you know who's running the show um, there and who, you know, who on top may or may not be restraining uh, the scientists there, which I am sure do very good work from, from actually engaging in this process. 
Sure, enough said. You're saying that it's uh, more controlled by the Florida DEP than is Tampa Bay. You bet. Yeah, that that's a significant difference right there. Yeah, it is. Um, we, we only have a few more minutes. Um, are, are there some closing advice that you would like to give to individuals that would like to see more responsible stewardship in their communities? Hmm, sure, of course. I think that no matter where you are um, as, a, as a homeowner um, or a property owner, um, you, can, you can find alternatives to pretty much anything that is considered unsustainable or less than um, adequately sustainable when it comes to um, your landscape. Um, sustainable landscaping, um, whether it is the choice of what kind of fertilizer you apply or when you apply it, or it's how often you mow or the kind of plants that you um, put in your landscape design, it really is a way to make um, a considerable impact in your very own backyard, literally and figuratively. And I think Mm. it's very um, empowering. Um, there are all kinds of um, websites out there, um, uh, depending on where you live, uh, what, what state, and what part of the nation you live in, um, that can help people do um, the right thing. In Florida, there's a website, um, a program called Be Floridian. Um, the website is BeFloridian.org. And um, it is actually um, a program from the Tampa Bay Estuary Program, um, and they do a lot here in Florida to encourage folks to actually relax outside, enjoy Florida's beauty, and not spend so much time mowing a lawn that really isn't helping the environment. Um, there's safelawns.org, another very good um, website that um, can apply to pretty much anyone um, anywhere in the states. Um, so there are lots of alternatives out there, and I encourage people to think about their own backyard as really a statement of, of how they relate to their environment and uh, have fun with it. And we were, talk, we're talking about a ban on fertilizing from June 1st to September 30th, but you pointed out earlier to me that um, that doesn't mean people can't spread the grass, the grass clippings onto their lawn. Absolutely. Uh, the, the research from not Florida but from uh, the rest of the country is that um, grass clippings supply about two pounds of nitrogen per year to a lawn during the growing season. And, again, that's not Florida because our growing seasons in most of Florida, at least Orlando South, are actually 10 months long. Um, But up north it's two pounds of nitrogen per, per summer, per growing season. That's a lot of nitrogen. Um, in Florida, we get a lot of lightning storms, um, and uh, Florida is the lightning capital um, uh, of the country and I think the world. And so um, lightning storms actually provide nitrogen um, uh, through atmospheric deposition. So there are all different kinds of way, ways to get nitrogen, including using things like um, your backyard compost. Um, compost is the best soil amendment you can use. Um, and so um, getting the right compost, um, using compost and grass clippings um, is the best way to feed your lawn uh, when you shouldn't be putting um, nitrogen and phosphorus down. And then you were saying just to, to watch your lawn and, and feed it only when it's hungry. You're, you know, you can experiment with uh, going longer abstinence between fertilizing. You bet. And there are all kinds of lawns out there that really don't need any extra fertilization at all. Um, unfortunately, the 
the kind of lawn, the kind of turf that is grown in Florida most um, most often is St. Augustine turf, and it's it's just fertilizer hungry. Um, we our soils here um, are not conducive, and so if you want to grow large expanses of St. Augustine grass, you have to figure out some way to fertilize it at some point. Um, and that's why we say, you know, you can fertilize it, just do it in the right way and at the right time. And then you can have clean water and healthy lawns at the same time. You bet. That's a good, that's a winning combination, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Happier dolphins and marine life, too. That's And fishermen, I guess. That, that's all goes together. You bet. And a better economy. Florida, Florida can't, you know, our, our economy down here is absolutely based on on our water quality if we lose water quality if we lose our tourists um we're up the polluted yeah. creek the, the tourists and seafood that's a bad combination to lose down there yeah really bad creation like that um so i really want to thank you for taking the time and, and sharing your expertise uh you'll be glad to know that next week um lisa soto has agreed to be my guest and uh, Lisa is newly uh, appointed to the head of the Marine Resources Council. Um, you think she's a good addition to the project? I think she's a tremendous addition. Um, she has uh, a background in urban stormwater, which is uh, of the utmost importance. Um, she's um, she's a wonderful person too. But I look very forward to um, a really close working relationship with Marine Resources Council. Um, looking very forward to it. Couldn't be more thrilled. Yeah, poor Lisa has been constrained by being in an academic setting where she couldn't be such an advocate, and now she's quite excited. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. <laughs> uh, Chris, I want to thank you for uh, taking time. Uh, once again, if people wish to contact you, what should they do? They can go to our Facebook page, Florida Slime Crimes, or they can email me at crischris.com costello c-o-s-t-e-l-l-o at sierraclub.org remember that's chris without the h that is correct (laughs) uh chris this is great and um i look forward to learning more about our progress in uh reducing uh, nitrogen pollution in florida great thank you so much rob I, i really appreciate the opportunity and thank you all for listening to chris and i talk about fighting slime, and reducing nitrogen pollution in Florida. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Dr.